Well hello and welcome to Round Article Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing The Bombard Story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're on Chapter 2. Chapter 2 continued. Everyone knows that seawater is dangerous. Consumed in large quantities, it causes death by inflammation of the kidneys or nephritis. What then is to be done? The answer lies in a study of the composition of water, the most important constituent of which is sodium chloride or common salt. I therefore made up my mind that I would consume the permissible daily intake of salt by swallowing it in seawater. This meant that I could drink about a pint and a half of seawater a day. The chief thing I had to worry about was its effect on the Malpighian corpuscles. These form the first filter in the kidneys and have to work the hardest when there is an abnormal concentration of mineral salts. The question was how long the corpuscles could continue to work without damage. As far as I could make out, this was about five days, after which the danger of nephritis became acute. It may be asked, what about the other chemicals in seawater? Well, France is famous for its mineral springs, but a quart of Salis water contains as much magnesium chloride as the amount of seawater I was considering. A quart of Montmuriel water contains as much magnesium sulfate. A quart of Contrexaville water holds as much calcium sulfate. A quart of bourbon water holds as much potassium chloride. And lastly, a quart of Vichy Grand Grille water holds as much calcium carbonate. The water problem, therefore, seemed to be solved. The next thing to be considered in detail was the intake of food. I had to devise a diet which would provide me with the necessary number of calories, paying due attention to the three main classes of foods, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. The table, showing the chemical analysis of fish below, proves that as far as quantity is concerned, ample proteins are available. But the problem is complicated by the fact that the human organism makes highly selective demands and has to have a certain type of protein. One variety, called the amino acids, is absolutely essential, and there is no substitute for it. All types of protein are to be found in fish, and the table shows the distribution in different species of the ten amino acids which chiefly concern us here. One part per 10,000 corresponds to approximately one-sixth of an ounce in a hundredweight. Thus, for example, a hundredweight of mackerel contains about one ounce of arginine. On the other hand, there are certain types of protein of which I had to be beware, particularly the ureides and purine bases. These are only present in quantity in the cartilaginous fishes, such as rays and sharks, which I would have to treat with extreme circumspection. As far as fats were concerned, the only question was to know whether I would find phospholipids, which is to say fats containing phosphorus, such as lecithin. Egg yolks are normally an important source. Abundant fats are available in all fish. Then came the decisive factor, that of carbohydrates and sugar. As far as the human being is concerned, these come from two sources, exogenous, that is to say consumed in food, or endogenous, manufactured by the body itself. There seemed few enough external sources of supply. Where was I to find sugar in the sea? It existed in quantity in the planktonic plants, but was it of a type that could be assimilated by the human organism? The carbohydrates fall into three main groups. Number one, 
the monosaccharides, which can be assimilated as they are characterized by the fact that the molecule contains six carbon atoms. The most typical is glucose. Number two, the disaccharides, with 12 atoms of carbon, such as saccharose, i.e. cane or beet sugar, which cannot be digested as they are, but which go through a process of hydrolysis during digestion and split into two molecules of C6 sugar. Number three, the polysaccharides, carbohydrates characterized by 18 or more carbon atoms in multiples of six in the molecule. Many carbohydrates of this group, such as cellulose, cannot be absorbed by the organism and pass through it unchanged, as they cannot be hydrolyzed into the assimilable C6 components. Unfortunately, these indigestible carbohydrates are the only ones to be found in plankton. The livers of many fish generate glucose, but if I ate too much liver, I risk making myself very ill through an excess of two indispensable but very dangerous substances, vitamin A and vitamin D. It therefore seemed that I was going to have to rely on my own body to manufacture the necessary carbohydrates. In normal circumstances, the human organism is capable of doing this, providing it has a sufficient supply of meat, fat, and a considerable quantity of water. I was in a vicious circle, and only practical experience could give the real answer. I had one encouraging example, that of the Eskimos, who for six months of the polar winter eat only meat and fat and drink melted seawater ice without seeming to suffer any serious consequences to their digestions. I still needed minute quantities of certain other substances, the famous vitamins. Infinitesimal as the amounts involved are, their absence can cause severe illness, the deficiency diseases, or avitaminosis. Too much of vitamins can have equally serious effects, resulting in hypervitaminosis. Four of them, vitamins A, B, C, and D, are absolutely essential, and it is not possible to do without them even for a short time. For the remainder, the margin of safety is considerably wider. Vitamin A and vitamin D, as I have noted, are extremely abundant in fish oil. I do not need to remind readers of their experiences as children with cod liver oil. Vitamins B1 and B2 are abundantly present in the flesh of fish, in which, however, as far as I know, no one has ever detected any trace of vitamin B12, the anti-pernicious anema factor. The margin of safety in this case is again quite wide, although the anemic state in which I finally arrived would seem to indicate that vitamin B12 is only found at sea in very limited quantities. Even with these considerations out of the way, there remained that scourge of sailors through the ages, scurvy. This is a deficiency disease due to the absence of vitamin C present in fresh fruit, green vegetables and plant life in general. How was I to solve this problem? My reasoning was this. Animals are divided into two types, those that manufacture their own ascorbic acid, vitamin C, and those who take it in the form of food. Now the whale is one of the animals which has to find an outside source for its ascorbic acid, and it feeds exclusively on plankton or on the minute crustaceans which themselves feed on plankton. It therefore seemed certain that plankton would provide my source of vitamin C, and this I verified by chemical analysis. There seemed every possibility of making up a balanced diet. I had my vitamins A, B, C and D, and as far as their calorie content was concerned, all the proteins and fats I needed. There was only one worry, and that was a vital one. Would I be able to find enough water to ensure my sugar balance? 
Chapter 3. Equipment. I soon realised that it would be quite easy, statistics in hand, to convince the scientists, but that winning over the sailors would be a different matter. At any mention of my work, they invariably replied, well, that's all very well in theory, it may make sense in a laboratory, but it'll be quite another thing at sea, take my word for it. There was still one overwhelming factor to be taken into consideration, how to defeat the greatest killer of them all, despair. It formed no part of the study of nutrition, but if drink is more important than food, instilling confidence is more important than drink. Thirst kills more quickly than hunger, but despair is a greater danger than thirst. What I will is fate, as Milton wrote. I had to take into account the whole question of morale. Who is most likely to suffer disaster at sea, the scientist or the sailor, the doctor or the fisherman? Here my doctor's training took over from my training as a physiologist, and I realised that practical evidence was necessary. If my theory was to be something more than a hypothesis, if it was to serve some real purpose, it was essential to reduce the experiment to human terms in an actual sea voyage. I had to find some way of isolating myself on the ocean for a period of between one and three months. The route I chose must have favourable winds and currents but be unfrequented, so that we would not be tempted to board any of the ships we met. Only by some such exploit could we fire the imaginations with proof that life can be sustained far from land. I started to read accounts of freak voyages, particularly by those who had sailed alone. Incomparably, the best work on the subject is that of my friend Jean Marion, Le Navigateur Solitaires. It needs no detailed comment here, but it makes two things clear. To attract attention, it was necessary for me to cross one of the great oceans. The Atlantic seemed the most suitable, and if a voyage was to last two months without there being too much temptation to abandon it, it would be best to follow the northeast trade wind and repeat two of the journeys, the second and the fourth, made by Christopher Columbus from Spain via the Canaries, past the Cape Verde Islands to the West Indies. This would avoid the main trade routes, which passed to the north for North America and the West Indies, and to the south for South America. It would also pass between the Sargasso Sea and the Doldrums, where we would risk certain disaster without benefiting anybody. Life at Monaco was extremely busy. I spent whole days in the library examining the index cards file by file and extracting with the help of Monsieur Comer, the librarian, my supply of books for the week. Almost every day I went out in one of the boats belonging to the museum, the Pisa or the Ida, and pressed a great variety of fish in an attempt to obtain the maximum quantity of liquid, paying particular attention to the taste. I discovered that the best instrument for this purpose was a simple fruit press. Gradually, I accustomed myself to the diet I would be following, and grew more confident as the results proved satisfactory. In the laboratory at least, it seemed that my theory was completely sound. By a miracle, I had managed to keep my project more or less secret, although in this I may have been helped by the polite disbelief and benevolent incredulity of those who knew about it. I was yet to learn that I was the only person who really believed in what I was doing. Little by little, the tentative date we had fixed for our departure was postponed. At first there were to be three of us, Van Hemsbergen, our sponsor, and myself. Then we became five, and finally six. At one point, we had decided to use a ship's lifeboat, but later our sponsor took up a really extraordinary craft. Our experience with it did a lot towards turning me into a lone voyager.
our Dutch patron had suddenly made up his mind to employ for our experiment a sort of Polynesian catamaran consisting of two hulls supporting a deck, not much more than a glorified water scooter, except that it had a sail. He sent us a prototype, which had been designed and well-designed, exclusively as a seaside plaything, and suggested that we should try and get it to Corsica and back again. Van Hemsbergen and I spent several days playing around with this ridiculous craft in the harbour, to the intense amusement of the onlookers, and then had it towed out to sea one fine morning towards the end of November. A slight breeze sprang up at about eleven o'clock, and the catamaran fairly scudded over the waves. We had turned for home when one of the leeboards broke. It should be explained that the two hulls were open so that one could sit in them, and it was rather like sitting in a canoe. We had made no attempt to cover them in, even though they shipped quite a lot of water, because we wanted to test the craft's stability. As we could no longer keep head on into the sea, the inevitable soon happened. A wave broke into one of the pontoons, and the whole thing turned turtle. We were well out into the Bay of Monte Carlo, and the wind was carrying us towards Cap Martin. We both reached the shore in the end, myself swimming and Jean towed in. The police even got mixed up in the affair, as I had scraped my thigh on the sharp rocks, and they received a report that a naked, bleeding man had been seen lurking about in the woods. It was clear that I was not going to become a voluntary castaway without a few involuntary experiences first of all. This episode should have been enough to prove to our sponsor the futility of this particular line of investigation, but on the contrary, he drew up ambitious plans for a large catamaran nearly 50 feet long with a cabin and a galley. It was clear that we were developing different conceptions of both ends and means. Whenever I ventured a few mild suggestions and protests, I was told that it was essential to give the expedition an international character, that several boats would probably take part, that there was still plenty of time, and that it was even envisaged to sail round the world. The plans became increasingly visionary, until it seemed that we had completely lost sight of the basic problem of the castaway. In my own mind, I slowly built up an obstinate resolution to abide by our original plans, to work only with this object in view, and then to present my colleagues with a fait accompli. I was sure that once everything was ready, vacillating minds would be made up and the expedition would really revert to its original purpose. I was told that everything would be ready for about May or June, and I decided to make my plans accordingly. Then we would start, with the blessing I felt sure of our patron. By the end of March, my laboratory studies were to all intents and purposes finished, my next-door neighbour in the laboratory was Dr. S. K. Conn of Reading University, and who had come to Monaco to study the family of minute planktonic crustaceans that form the principal food of whales, and which are to be found on the surface of the sea between Mentone and Cap Martin. Dr. Conn suggested that he should introduce me to one or two experts who would be able to complete my information. I therefore paid a quick visit to England, where, thanks to him, and to Dr. McGee at the Ministry of Health, I was put in touch with representatives of the Navy and Air Force, of whom one, Dr. Whittingham, became my good friend. They all made both their interest and, when they had any, their doubts very clear. Dr. Whittingham also met our patron and paid us a short visit in Monaco. My only regret was that on two occasions I missed meeting Professor McCants, the Cambridge Plankton Specialist. My journey was not without some curious repercussions. When I was passing through the customs at Calais, one of the inspectors said to me, Another channel crossing, eh? I smiled. Oh no, this time it's the Atlantic. He gave a short, incredulous laugh. 
but on reflection must have said to himself, well, after all, why not, and passed on the tip to a British newspaper. Thus it was that the press started to take an interest in us. One day, a journalist came to interview me at the laboratory in Monaco, and a whole sequence of reports began to appear, many of them grossly distorting the facts. Without realising it, I had touched off publicity, and the reports became increasingly grotesque. I was referred to as Professor Bombard with all sorts of learned titles. It all acquired the tone of the worst form of publicity campaign and seriously interfered with my work. The only good result was a stream of volunteers who offered their services, making it clear that there was no danger of my lacking company. Still counting on Van Hemsbergen, I only needed one more member to complete the crew. One day, a tall Englishman, red-haired and of the true phlegmatic type, came to place himself, his sextant, and his boat at my disposal. His name was Herbert Muir Palmer, a naturalised citizen of Panama, and better known as Jack Palmer. A first-class seaman and navigator, he had sailed from Panama, across the Atlantic, through the Mediterranean to Cairo, and then, in company with his wife, from Cairo back to Monaco, in a little ten-metre yacht, the Hermione, touching at Cyprus and Tobruk, and passing through the Straits of Messina. He had been at Monaco for a year or so, and was short of money, like so many of these lone sailors. I told him all about our plans, how two or three of us wanted to place ourselves in the situation of shipwrecked survivors in a lifeboat or life raft, without food or water, in order to prove to the world that survival was possible in such conditions. He asked me to give him a few hours to think it over, not wanting to commit himself lightly, and then came back and said, Dr. Bombard, I am your man. I liked him better every day and was overjoyed with my find, but we were still safely on land. In spite of myself, I could not help thinking, what will he be like when we really get hungry? What happens if we fall out between ourselves? I know Hemsbergen's reactions, but what about Palmer? It was because of this that we finally decided to make a trial in the Mediterranean instead of setting off straight away from Tangier or Casablanca. This almost landlocked sea, so deceptively like a lake, would test both men and equipment. The worse it behaved, the greater service it would render. We would all know the difficulties confronting us and would then be able to challenge the Atlantic. I was negotiating with the people who had made the hitchhiker for a similar craft, somewhat larger, and the discussions went slowly. In the meantime, I continued to receive countless offers from volunteers and had to put up with a cloud of newspapermen. Some of the letters I received unfolded the most delightful and bizarre ideas. One prospective crew member tried to strengthen his case by offering to allow himself to be eaten if the experiment failed. Another wrote to say that he had already tried to commit suicide three times. He asked if he might come with us because he thought I had hit on a workable method of achieving his aim. Yet a third proposed that I should take his mother-in-law as a passenger, suggesting that my efforts at life-saving could well start by rescuing a marriage which was being wrecked by the person in question. Another correspondent asked how he would irrigate his garden with seawater since I claimed it had no deleterious effects. Of course, there were other suggestions of a more reasonable kind, such as offers of experimental equipment, which it was suggested I should test. On the 15th of May, a Thursday, I received a telephone call from Jean-Luc de Cabuccia, who has become my close friend, offering to publish the book I was to write about my experiences and proposing a contract which made the expedition more or less self-sufficient and would leave my wife without material worries. 
Two days later, I went to Paris and, after a last heated argument with the maker, took over the craft which was to become Le Heretique, or the Heretic. Triumphant, I returned to Monaco with my personal transatlantic liner. At long last, the expedition was about to start, just when everyone seemed to have ceased believing in it. I sent telegrams to Van Hamsbergen and our patron. The latter arrived the evening before we were due to set off, saying, This is the best day of my life, not only my birthday, but the start of the adventure. Van Hemsbergen has been detained, but I have come to take his place. I then had to convince him that his £350 could not possibly be accommodated in such a frail vessel, and that it would be a much greater service to the expedition if he would stay behind and organise the next stage. Palmer and I were ready to leave the following day, the 24th, and the designer of our boat, the well-known airman, De Brutel, was attending to the last details of our inflatable dinghy in the harbour of Monaco. It was a sort of horseshoe-shaped inflatable rubber sausage, some 15 feet long and 6 feet wide, and seemed the perfect piece of equipment for such an expedition as ours. The open end was closed by a wooden sternboard, over which we could trail our fishing nets and lines without causing damage by friction to the fragile rubber floats. The bottom of the boat was about 3 feet wide and supported a lightweight wooden deck board. There was not a single piece of metal in the whole construction. The floats were divided into five compartments, the curved bow and two along each side, by hermetically sealed rubber bulkheads. An outside valve, which could be turned on and off as required, allowed air to pass from one compartment to the other. It will be seen in due course how useful this arrangement was. The deck, or bottom, it was one and the same, was practically flat, and there was a rigid keel running the length of the boat. It had a dinghy sail of about three square yards, but the mast was placed too far forward, which made it impossible to sail into the wind. However, there were two leeboards fixed about a third of the way down the sides, and these gave the craft a certain degree of manoeuvrability, although in practice I used them little except when approaching land. All I needed now was a sailing permit. One would have thought it a simple enough formality, but in this case it turned out to be extremely difficult, and at one moment it looked as if the whole project would collapse through the lack of this one piece of paper. A few days earlier, I had been given an unpleasant surprise. The local court in the north of France had ruled, in my absence, that I should pay a suspended fine of 2,000 francs for breaking the regulations concerning navigation on the high seas. Wishing to defend myself, I jumped into a train to go and oppose the finding. The second act of what I have called the comic interlude took place in the imposing surroundings of a court of petty sessions. I was charged with having used on the high seas without a navigation permit a craft designed only for use off the beach. My turn came to speak. Your Honour, I must say I find it curious to be alone here on this charge as I was only a passenger in a boat whose owner was on board. I should also like to ask whether I would have been granted a navigation permit if I had asked for it. It would neither have been refused nor granted, and it is not necessary in this case. At this point, the prosecutor jumped up like a jack-in-the-box and launched into a violent diatribe, although he had not said a word up until then. Your Honour, he said, the court should know that the accused is a public danger, whose bad example might well cause loss of life amongst the young people in these parts. He has already been fined 2,000 francs in default, as he has committed two offences, there should be a double fine. Sir, 
I am in process of conducting an experiment which may be of worldwide importance, I tried to explain. In the interests of all concerned, I hope you will not find it necessary to find me. The prosecutor broke in again. It is quite clear that the accused is an irresponsible hoaxer, he said. This experiment only exists in his imagination. After due deliberation, the court imposed two suspended fines of a thousand francs, one on each charge. There was no time in which to enter an appeal, so I returned to Monaco. When I got back from this hearing, I received another visitor whose ideas were in due course to imperil the whole expedition. He was a good-looking fellow in his early thirties, typical of a certain type of journalist, full of energy and vulgarity. He started the interview by asking, Do you have a radio transmitter? No. Well, count yourself lucky, because I am going to see that you get one. I looked at my benefactor, open-mouthed, hardly able to believe in this unexpected offer. Then he went on. We are very much interested in your experiment. However, you must realize that putting a radio transmitter receiver in a craft such as yours presents a number of technical problems. We would like to go into them with you. Will you agree? I shook hands with him effusively. It may not be easy to get a broadcasting license from the principality, but try and give us all the notice you can and we will bring the equipment immediately. You do realize, I said, that I would then need the set as quickly as possible. It is going to take a little time to install it. Leave it to us, he answered, and off he went. Delighted with this new development, I put in the necessary application to the Monaco administration with a request that it should be given priority. I received the license on 23rd May, but I had been given advance notice and was able to pass the word to the reporter on the 20th of May. While in Paris on the 16th of May, I had told Jean-Luc all about this offer, but instead of becoming as excited as I was, he was slightly discouraging. Have you any idea of the complications involved, he said? It would need a professional expert or at least a highly gifted amateur to maintain contact across 2,000 miles of ocean with such a tiny set. This had, in fact, occurred to me, and I had already tried to impress on my reporter friend that I was totally ignorant of anything to do with radio. All the more reason for you having one, he had said. Jean-Luc, not sharing my confidence, thought over the problem, and after I'd left Paris he got in touch with a friend of his named Jean Ferré, who was connected with the French transmitting network. I was not worrying, I'd yet to learn that I was going to get no radio, but that by way of compensation I should win two good friends. On the 22nd of May, Jean Ferré telephoned me from Paris. His curiosity was only equalled by his indignation. What sort of valves do you have? he asked me. What type of aerial? What is your source of power? What wavelengths will you work on? What is the make of the receiver? It was all Greek to me, and I could only stammer in reply that I had complete confidence in the people who were giving me the equipment. But experts would expect to give months of study to this problem, he went on. Radio amateurs like me, with modest equipment and not operating under the best of conditions, need at least a fortnight, even when the sets are installed, to put them in full working order. Today is the 22nd, and you want to leave on the 24th, without as much as having seen your equipment yet? You must be crazy. And he hung up. Thoroughly shaken, I rang up my journalist friend. Please hurry up. I am leaving on the 24th, I said. Oh, we know that perfectly well, dear Dr. Bombard. Just have confidence in us, he replied. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com 
forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate's level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.